Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There is an old story that has appeared in different forms, at different times, in different cultures for nearly 1,000 years. Uh, the first place that we can find this story popping up is in India in 1052. After that, a, another form of this story shows up in Spain in 1335. Uh, but the version by which you probably have come to know this story uh, was as it appeared in Germany in 1837 in a collection of fairy tales written by Hans Christian Andersen. Now in this story, this fairy tale, two thieves, two scoundrels, two swindlers come before a lavishly wealthy emperor and they pitch him, they offer to sell him something that he doesn't have. Now what do you give to the man who has everything? Well, they offer him, promise him that they can make him beautiful clothes, glorious garments, clothing so fine, so beautiful, so radiant, that only the worthy would be able to see these clothes. The ignorant, the stupid, the incompetent would not even be able to have their eyes register in their senses the beauty of these clothes at all. Well, the emperor was not only lavishly wealthy, he was also a vain man, and if there were these clothes to be had, he had to have them. And so he hired these worthless men to make these clothes for him. Well, right away, these swindlers went to work to produce these clothing, and on the day that these garments were ready to show to the king, they brought them to the king, and as they presented these clothes to the emperor, the emperor was shocked and dismayed that he could not see these clothes. Now, of course, he couldn't admit it, because that would mean that he's one of these incompetent, stupid people who couldn't appreciate these fine clothes in front of him. And so, he was too proud to admit Instead, he had to just praise them. Well, these are beautiful. These are more beautiful than anything I've ever seen. And then he made a big show of putting these clothes on, these invisible, non-existent clothes on. And of course, the people of his court, as awkward as this was, had to praise him as well. Yes, emperor, these are wonderful. We've never seen such beautiful clothes. And again, this man was a vain man and wanted to parade his beautiful clothes before all the people. And so he was on his chariot and he went through the streets and again, all the people, too proud to admit what everyone knows is to be obvious, until a small child does, much to the chagrin of all parents everywhere, what small children do, which is to blurt out what everyone is thinking and what no one is willing to say out loud. 
the emperor has no clothes. Well, when the small child says this, as the story goes, the spell was broken. Everyone was able to say, it's not just me. And they were able to realize that, in fact, these men had cheated the emperor. The emperor had no clothes. Now, the reason that story is so popular, the reason it's found its way into different cultures and different languages at different times for nearly 1,000 years is because it captures a phenomenon that all of us understand. If you understand human nature, you have seen this happen. Where there are truths that are obvious. There are truths that are incontrovertible. You cannot argue against those truths. And yet because the crowd is too proud, people are not willing to acknowledge the truth. Now what's so interesting about this story today is we are getting a slightly different form of that kind of story here. Jesus begins to teach his disciples about something that he must do, about the sufferings that he must undergo. And the disciples, through the representative Peter, confessed in the previous passage that this was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now the question is, should the emperor, should the son of the living God actually go through with this kind of a thing? Or is it true that a crucified emperor has no glory? Is this a case of an emperor has no clothes, that a crucified emperor has no glory, or is something else going on? And how do we know the difference? What's at stake here? Well, our big idea this morning as we try to work our way through this to really understand the dilemma that's being posed by what Jesus instructs his disciples that he must undergo is this, that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. Against all human understanding, against all outward appearances, Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. So three parts in each of the three verses. First of all, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. Second, the temptation of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. And third, the mindset of man, the mindset of man. So first of all, the wisdom of God in verse 21. Matthew uses a very interesting phrase to transition into this story, from that time. This is fairly unique in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I want to revisit something I said last week because I changed my mind between last week and this week. Uh, last week, if you remember, when we were looking at the geography of where we were back in verse 13, we read that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And again, that's the furthest, the farthest north that Jesus goes in his travels. And I said I wasn't quite sure why that was. Maybe this was just one of those things where you always remember where something happens. Well, as I studied more this passage this week, I think this passage helps us to understand why Jesus went so far north in the previous passage. Some of the commentators were helpful in looking at this. Uh, one commentator, R.T. France, again points out that when Jesus reaches the farthest northern point of his ministry, he's really the high point of his ministry. That everything leading up to this point led to the confession of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything up to that point had been about revealing his identity to his disciples. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. 
And up to this point, Jesus has been steadily withdrawing, withdrawing from conflict, withdrawing from the religious leaders, withdrawing from threats up to this most northern point until now, where from that time, Jesus begins a southward trek. He's at the most northern point, and now he's beginning his southward, downward descent all the way to Jerusalem, where we read that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes. Up to this point, Jesus had been withdrawing because the time has not yet come, and now the time has come for Jesus to go into the belly of the beast, the center of the opposition to him and his ministry, where he will be crucified and killed and buried, but on the third day be raised again. In the previous passage, we're seeing just sort of uh, the, 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 the midpoint. We're seeing the division of this gospel. It's like crossing over the continental divide in the Rocky Mountains. On one side, you're on one side, and all of the, all of the weather systems are one thing. And when you cross over to the other side, all the weather systems and all the rivers flow a different direction. That's what's happening here. In the previous passage was Peter's confession of Jesus' identity. From now on, Jesus is teaching about his redemptive work. And so we read that Jesus began to show his disciples. This is the beginning. Jesus has much to teach them, and the lesson starts at a very basic level. Notice there are very few details included here. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That's the main lesson at the moment. This necessity that he must go to Jerusalem, because that necessity is going to be questioned. For Peter, this isn't a necessity. Not only is it not a necessity, it is the furthest thing from what should happen. But Jesus' first lesson is that this must happen, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes. This list of people, elders, chief priests, and scribes, shows that Jesus has in mind sufferings that will not happen accidentally. And it won't happen as a result of maybe some overzealous Roman soldiers. But this will be a decision that will come upon him by the Sanhedrin. The the group composed of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes is the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish Supreme Court. This will happen as a result of the injustice of the rejection of Jesus' own people as they reject and despise the long-awaited Messiah whom God has sent to them. Now again, in the previous passage, when Peter made this great confession, Jesus acknowledges the truthfulness. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And back in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter come to know the truth in the previous passage? It was from revelation from the Father in heaven. Well, God is still revealing truth to the disciples but it's God in the person of God the Son and Jesus Christ who is revealing to his disciples what he knows must happen. Because Jesus understands that Christ crucified is the wisdom of God for the salvation of sinners. Now here's where we hit this dilemma that I talked about earlier. When we are talking about Jesus going to the cross, we are talking about what, humanly speaking, 
by all outward appearances. Externally incontrovertible is the fact that what Jesus is going to do is the opposite of what a human Savior should do. A crucified emperor has no glory. This is obvious. This is apparent to anyone with eyes to see. So are we looking at a story of the emperor having no clothes? Is Jesus saying, I know you think I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, but in fact, I am someone who will die a shameful death, and that's the end of the story. That's the last you will hear from me. You thought one thing, but you were wrong. I, in fact, have no glory. In fact, that's not what Jesus is saying. You see, the, the thing about the story of the emperor having no clothes is it's a story about what is outwardly obvious, what is incontrovertibly true by basic human observation. It's something everyone knows to be true, but people are not necessarily willing because of pride to acknowledge the truth of it. Jesus, on the other hand, is talking about something very different. He knows that this is not obvious. He knows that outwardly speaking, he knows that by all human expectations, what he is going to do has no outward, visible, external glory. Jesus knows that what he is talking about, outwardly speaking, by all human understanding, is shameful. It's a stumbling block. It is something to be rejected and to be despised. But what Jesus is beginning to instruct his disciples about is about a glory that in fact they cannot see. It is a spiritual, hidden, veiled, in fact, invisible kind of a glory. The crucified emperor has glory but it is truly an invisible glory. Not like the invisible clothes that duped the one emperor, but this emperor, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, His glory is a true glory, but it is one that we cannot see. And so the reason Jesus has to reveal this to His disciples is to begin to explain to them what there is no other way they could come to understand. And so it's obvious that the disciples will struggle with this idea. Peter is horrified at the thought that his beloved Jesus, the Messiah, is going to suffer. And so zealously we are going to see in the next verse that Peter is going to try to nip this idea in the bud. You're the son of the living God. It can't be that this would happen to you. And while it is not Peter's intention in doing this, Peter will become an instrument of Satan to tempt Jesus away from the calling for which Jesus entered into this world. So let's look at this next verse. Number two, the temptation of Jesus in verse 22. Again, Peter is horrified. He knows what everyone knows by human reasoning and understanding, that a crucified emperor has no glory. Peter is the little child willing to say what all of us are thinking. There's no glory in that. What are you doing? There's no glory in that. But understand the way Matthew presents this. Matthew is writing this story very deliberately as a recreation of the scene of Jesus' temptation at the hands of Satan in Matthew chapter 4. 
We're going to have to think back to that passage in Matthew chapter 4. But look at the way this is written in verse 22. We read that Peter took him aside. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, it was immediately after Jesus' baptism, we read that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why? The Holy Spirit was putting Jesus in a place where he would be alone to do direct, head-to-head, hand-to-hand combat with Satan. He was alone. He was the end of suffering, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, and that's when Satan came to him to tempt him. Well, here, the way Matthew is telling this story is Peter is taking Jesus aside. Peter is getting Jesus alone to tempt him, to abandon the mission for which Jesus came into this world, to abandon God's wisdom of Christ crucified. Now, do you remember Satan tempted Jesus in three ways? In the first way, remember what Satan began with. He began with a question of sneering reproach. If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. It was a direct shot at Jesus' identity, an identity that the Father himself had affirmed from heaven at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the previous passage back in Matthew chapter 4. Well, what's the previous passage here? Revelation from the Father informs Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's on that basis, on the basis of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, that Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. We read that Peter began to rebuke Jesus. That word for began is the exact same word that appeared earlier where Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Peter is directly contradicting Jesus right after Peter had been the one who had correctly affirmed the nature of Jesus' identity. Just as Satan began by directly targeting Jesus' identity, if you are the Son of God, So Peter is reasoning from his understanding of the truth of Jesus' identity. His reasoning is flawed and false, but it's connected to what he just confessed. He's got to stop this because Jesus is the Son of God. So he thinks. The second temptation, if you remember, Satan appealed to God's providential care of Jesus. He brought Jesus up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The nature of that temptation was Satan was saying, look, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you put this to the test? If you really believe that God will preserve you, why don't you throw yourself down and let Him show his preserving care for you, the beloved Son of God. It's so interesting what Peter says. It's kind of hard to capture directly, literally in English. It's translated in the English Standard Version, far be it from you, Lord. But it's really just one word, mercy. It's this idea, may God have mercy on you, Lord. It's appealing to the mercy of God. Far be it from you, Lord. This can't happen to you. God's mercy will not let you suffer in this way, Lord. 
It's the same exact appeal that Satan made to Jesus' providential care from the Lord. But just as Jesus saw through that temptation, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to to the test. Jesus also will see through this temptation. The third temptation, you may remember, Satan finally dropped all pretense. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said, if you bow down to me, I will give you all these kingdoms. Now, in that enticement, Jesus was held out a promise that if you will just bow down to me, here's something you will be able to do. You will be able to sidestep the cross. You came into this world to die, right? You came into this world to suffer so that you could win an inheritance of nations. Let me give you an alternative path to this. You don't have to suffer. Bow down to me and I will give you everything. And now Peter echoes that sentiment and says, this shall never happen to you. You'll never have to suffer, Jesus. The same thing that Satan said, Peter is now echoing. There's such a conflicted vision of Peter in these two passages. In the previous passage, Peter confessed rightly, and Jesus blessed him. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But now, who is Peter? He's playing the role of Satan himself. He is echoing the words of Satan, tempting Jesus to disobey the wisdom of God, of Christ crucified. I think there's something so important for us to hear from this, to recognize and to apply from our own lives. Very often our genuine love for other people prompts us to speak to them, to advise them, to counsel them in a way that can lead them into disastrous sin. Whatever we think of Peter here, we have to understand that this comes from very good intentions. He is not doing this because he wants to undercut Jesus. He is doing this out of his love for Jesus. And yet, as Calvin points out, our good intentions, because we cannot see the whole picture, are rotten to the core. Our best intentions, when they stand against the will of God, are utterly, disastrously flawed. And so when we love other people, and we encourage them in a way out of those real, genuine affections for them to turn away from the will of God in their lives. As good as intentions may be, we are leading them away from the larger truth of their responsibilities before God. And more than that, we are leading them away from God's kindness, even when He providentially leads us in and through our suffering. There's a great reality that Jesus has in front of him, that he sees, though it is invisible, that he understands, though his disciples don't yet. It's well expressed by the hymn hymn writer William Cooper who writes, Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Though we do not understand, and we may sometimes want to help the people we love most to avoid God's frowning providence, understand that all that is to avoid the smiling face that is hidden in the suffering in which we must walk sometimes. Well, this is a crisis moment in Jesus' ministry. 
Again, this is the great continental divide of the whole gospel. On one side, the rivers flow a direction. The weather systems are all self-contained. On the other side, it's another river flowing in a direction. The weather systems are all different. Everything is now hanging in the balance on top of this point. How then will Jesus evaluate this temptation and how will he respond? Well, this brings us to the third section, the mindset of man in verse 23. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. We read, He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, what's so important to understand here because it's translated differently is that this is exactly what Jesus had said to Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. Those are the same words repeated here with one small difference. Let me translate this to capture the connection between Matthew 4 and Matthew 16 here. Jesus is saying to Peter, Be gone behind me, Satan. Be gone, Satan. Be gone behind me, Satan. Now, what accounts for the difference? Why does Jesus add this language behind me when he's talking to Peter here? Well, it's explained in the next line. You are a hindrance to me. You're a hindrance to me. The language here is of a stumbling block. As Don Carson points out in his commentary, we should note in the previous passage, there's so many connections in this great continental divide. In the previous passage, Jesus had identified Peter as the rock on which he will build his church. You were Peter, and on this rock, I will build his church. Now, Jesus is once again calling Peter a rock, but it's a totally different kind of a rock. You are a stumbling block, a boulder in my path, preventing me from the path that I must take to the cross. Jesus is calling Peter a rock, the rock that is a hindrance and preventing him on his way. The same word for stumbling block is what Paul identifies as the same stumbling block that keeps Jews from believing in Jesus unto this day. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, Paul writes, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. That's the same word translated here as hindrance. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Jesus understands what Peter does not, namely that the cross is the wisdom of God, it is the power of God. This is not a case where the crucified emperor has no glory. This is the glory of Jesus. And Peter is trying to keep him from it because it's invisible. Because he can't see it outwardly, externally. It's just like the emperor had no clothes in his thinking. And yet this glory is real if hidden and veiled and invisible. How then did Peter miss the mark so badly? Now again, we should remember, just as in the previous passage, Peter spoke for all the disciples. Once again, Peter is speaking as a representative of all. Again, he's the little child saying what all of us are thinking, but none of us are willing to say out loud. And what Jesus goes on to explain at the end of verse 23, as he explains, he accounts for the difference. How did Peter miss it? It is because Peter was evaluating this not from God's perspective, but from a human perspective. For you were not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
because you evaluate this externally, on the surface, according to what you can see, according to what is visible, you don't see the things of God, which are spiritual and invisible and of far more glory than you could possibly think or imagine. According to the human idea, the Christ should be a strong Savior who conquers our enemies, who sets aside our suffering. But according to God's ideas, the things of God, the Christ, He will indeed be a strong, glorious Savior, but it will be according to the divine plan that looks utterly foolish to the world. Why does Peter miss this? In the previous passage, Peter had received revelation from the Father. In this passage, Peter had received revelation from Jesus. But what happens here is that he had not received the illumination of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, still talking about this message of Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews to this day. Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. To the natural man, the emperor really does have no clothes. To the natural man, the crucified emperor really does have no glory. There's nothing to see there. It's invisible. But to those who have been taught of the Spirit of God, the crucified emperor's glory is invisible, and yet it is worth treating everything visible in this world in order to receive. The emperor indeed is clothed. The crucified emperor indeed is clothed with the glory of his cross and resurrection. The application to this then is that we must trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, we so often, whether we realize we're doing it at all, even as much as we try to stop ourselves from doing it, we tend to think that our chief problems are in this world. If I were to ask you what are your problems this morning, you would think instantly of things that are visible, things that are obvious, things that are apparent, things that are externally observable. The main issue we have in our minds is that we suffer. Therefore, the main solution that we would concoct is that we need a strong Savior to prevent this suffering, to stop this suffering, to reverse this suffering. But Jesus puts His finger on a much deeper issue, the real issue. The problem we have is that we set our minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. The wisdom of God that Jesus is beginning to teach us as His disciples in this passage here, as we've come over the other side of this continental divide in the Gospel of Matthew, is not something that is intuitive to us according to natural reasoning. It's not something that is familiar. It is not something that is reasonable or rational according to human standards of thinking. Everyone and everything around us evaluates the world on a totally different basis than what we need to understand what Jesus is telling us about here. But this is exactly why we need the Scriptures, why we need the power of the Holy Spirit, why we must humble ourselves. This is why we, by God's grace, must not allow ourselves to be distracted by a thousand other things that this world is pursuing. Paul reminds us in 
the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 3, that we've got to set our minds on the things of God. As Paul writes there, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now Paul was able to say this, and he wants to teach us this because he wants to prepare us from the outset that God's wisdom is a hidden invisible mystery as Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 7 a few verses later but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory there's glory in this not just for Jesus but Jesus shares this glory with us as he calls us into his glory is the crucified Savior God does not share His glory properly speaking, but He calls us to enter into the enjoyment of His glory for all of eternity through this message of Christ crucified. But these are things that we can only know through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Does this message strike you as dull? as foolish, as irrelevant to your problems, as meaningless in the wider scheme of what's gone wrong in the world? Do you wish that our church would get on with something that seems to really matter? Do you wonder why we keep talking about Jesus' sufferings and death and resurrection week after week after week after week? Do you believe that the secret for success in life has got to be somewhere outside of this, outside of Christ crucified? Listen so carefully to me. If you don't see this, if you don't see the glory of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, if you do not see the glory of the crucified emperor, the crucified son of the living God, if you don't see that, then you're still lost. You are still in your sins. And what the Scriptures warn is if you don't see this, if this is not sweet to you, if you've not embraced this as your only hope in life and in death, then what awaits you after everything in this visible world fades away as you close your eyes in death or as Jesus comes to bring this world through a recreation process that will mean burning it all up to bring it back in the new heavens and the new earth. Then what awaits for you after all of this has passed away is eternal damnation and condemnation and destruction in hell forever. A fire that cannot be quenched. Torment that will never end in the face of the wrath of the one who is described in the Bible as all-consuming fire himself. If you don't see that danger today, the warning is that you will. You will for all of eternity. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the wisdom of God planned in eternity past in the mind of God. We cannot be wiser than God. The things that appear to be foolishness to us are wiser than the wisdom of men. And if we would be saved, we must embrace Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Because the hope of the gospel is that just as God raised up the one who suffered in our place for our sins, the one who submitted to death, giving up his life for us on the cross, the one who submitted to be buried in the grave for three days, that just as God then raised Jesus on the third day from the dead, so on the last day he will raise all those who believe. This is our only hope in life and in death. Christ alone. Christ alone. Do you know him? Is he your hope? Do you see the glory of the crucified emperor, the crucified living son of God who died and who is now alive forevermore? If you don't, will you come to trust in him today? The gospel he holds out is strong to save those who look to him and call out to him in faith. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. As you trust this morning in Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus Christ and him crucified as our only hope in this life and the next. And I pray that if there are any here who do not yet know Jesus, that you would lead them to a saving knowledge in your Son who took on human nature in order to be crucified for us and for our sins. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.